I V M. Hello and welcome to the Wire Talks. I'm Siddharth Bhatia. On the 21st of February, Seattle became the first city in the United States to explicitly ban discrimination on the basis of caste after the city council passed an ordinance. The ordinance was introduced by council member Kshama Savant, who called it profound and historic. Savant, who grew up in Mumbai, moved to the U.S. and completed a Ph.D. in economics from North Carolina State University. She is a member of the Socialist Alternative, the first and only member of the party to be elected into public office. She has been a council member since 2014 and won a historic victory in 2015 when she successfully pushed for a minimum wage in the city of Seattle of $15 an hour. In California, Meanwhile, a Cisco employee who alleged discrimination on account of his caste status is fighting a court case. This case highlighted how caste is subtly used to discriminate against the so-called lower caste even in the United States and it led to many universities banning it. After the city council's decision, Savant expressed the hope that other cities would follow. But the move was severely criticized by groups such as the Hindu American Foundation and the Vishwa Hindu Parishad, which has said that it demonized Hindus. Savan joins us today to discuss this historic step. Welcome to the Wire Talks, Shama Savant. Thank you for having me, Siddharth. You're the first socialist to win a citywide election in Seattle in almost a century. That was in 2014. And in these 10 years, you have won elections to the council each time you stood. What is it that convinces voters to support a socialist in a city that has so many large tech companies and presumably tech employees? Yes, I was first elected in 2013. I took office in 2014. And now in December, I will have served on the council for a decade, a full decade. And as you said, I have won four elections. And the reason we have won these elections and the reason the majority of the voters have consistently supported an open socialist and not, you know, much less a Marxist. I've been openly a Marxist and our organization, Socialist Alternative, is very open about our politics. The reason we have won, despite all the demonizing of the ideas of socialism, and not even that, in, in fact, even the massive opposition there has been from the bosses of the tech sector, the billionaire class, billionaires like Jeff Bezos, the reason we have won, despite all of that, is because we have successfully put forward an agenda, a program of demands that resonates with the vast majority of people. You know, we don't we don't demand that they agree on every aspect of our analysis as socialists or as Marxists. But for example, in 2013, when we ran our first campaign for city council, it became enormously popular among working people because we talked about the need for a $15 an hour minimum wage in a city where 100,000 workers were making wages below the poverty line. The campaign was embraced by the majority of the working class because we brought up the question of rent control, because this is a city. And in fact, this is true in every metropolitan area in the United States. It's a city with skyrocketing rents. And we were the only ones talking about rent control and renters' rights. And the other main demand we brought up was the need to tax the billionaire bosses 
to fund affordable housing and other needs of our city. And, you know, contrary to the conventional logic of politics, and this is not just true about the United States, this is true in many parts of the world, the conventional logic of establishment-style politics is that you don't rock the boat, you don't say anything controversial, and that your preoccupation should be to make yourself liked by the powers that be, you know, make sure you pay your respects to the wealthiest people, to the political establishment, uh, and make sure they are happy. But actually, that logic prevents you from um, building links with working class people. And, and so we, we threw the conventional rule book out the window and we boldly campaigned on a working class program each time. That is what has allowed us to win election after election. You mentioned uh, demonization by the billionaire class and presumably the business class in general. And uh, you actually mentioned Jeff Bezos. Uh, and uh, from what I understand and what I read, Amazon or he personally funded uh, a campaign against you. This is what I read. Don't normal Americans also get nervous when they hear the word socialist, much less Marxist? It used to be that way, but that was for the baby boom, what the so-called baby boom or era, you know, people who were young in during the the old Cold War era when there was the Soviet Union and the United States, and those were the two poles. And there was uh, a lot of anti-socialist, anti-Marxist rhetoric at that time. But now we are living in a world where for the vast majority of young people in America, and we're talking about tens of millions of people, it's not just the question of Seattle. There is uh, the, the, most, the most predominant feeling for young people is that the current system capitalism is not working for them. You know, think of, think, of, think of how the world looks from the eyes of somebody who is 20 years old or 30 years old. All they have seen is crisis after crisis after crisis. Most young people in America, for example, fall into what's now becoming, uh, coming to be called as the downwardly mobile generation, meaning that even if you grew up in a family where your parents had somewhat decent standards of living, you're not able to replicate those standards of living because the world right now uh, in, in the crisis of capitalism is simply not giving you that, those options. Even if you work hard in school, you go to college, you end up accumulating tens of thousands of dollars of student debt just to get a college degree. You don't get a job. For the most part, people are not getting jobs that are able to give them a decent standard of living, pay the rent that they need to pay, and pay the interest and the principal on the student's loan, student loans. So it's a, it's a massive crisis for the vast majority of young people. And then not to mention a huge section of the working class, especially people of color, immigrant community workers who just don't get by. But I should also say the popularity of our demands and the way we have used a fighting strategy to win our campaigns and also to win the $15 an hour minimum wage, as you mentioned, and also the Amazon tax, attacks on big business to fund affordable housing. The popularity of these demands is not just with low-income people, it's with also with uh, tech sector workers. So there's a, there's a very clear class-based contrast on who's on which side. So as you said, billionaires like Jeff Bezos who own the assets in Amazon, they were completely opposed to us. And in fact, you're completely right. They, they directly spent millions of dollars trying to defeat us. But on the other hand, Many of the workers at corporations like Amazon and Microsoft and Google are on our side and they not only voted for us, but they also helped campaign for us. So, Shama, from what uh, 
I pick up here and uh, is that the young American today, people of color, especially women, especially um, minorities of different kinds, but everyone else too, feels that they are being completely, you know, they have no options in life if this kind of system continues. They have lost faith in the politics of the country. Is that a good summation? It is. In fact, it's pretty striking how much the vast majority of young people are disenchanted with both the Republican and the Democratic parties, even though there are differences between the two parties. I mean, Republicans are openly right-wing, openly anti-worker and anti-union and anti-immigrant. Democrats are not openly in like that. Uh, at the end of the day, though, the two parties agree on a very fundamental point, which is that they are both servants of the interests of Wall Street, interests of the wealthy. And so young people are very disenchanted by those ideas and they are uh, frustrated and angry with corporate politics and that they are looking for are, you know, different, they're looking for an alternative type of agenda. And in fact, that's also linked with the huge rise in popularity of unions and unionizing. You know, so over the last three, four years, there's been an unprecedented rise in uh, union drives. In fact, right now, there's a very important union drive going on at Amazon warehouses. So if that is the case, I'm playing devil's advocate here. If that is the case, why wouldn't uh, other uh, proper leftists and socialists and others emerge uh, elsewhere? You mean uh, other in other left forces in the United States, you mean? In the United States, in Seattle, in other cities. Why, why are they not getting uh, traction, assuming that there are people like that? No, that's actually, Siddharth, that is a very important question. In fact, without um, asking and answering that question, you can't really make sense of why at the same time that consciousness of uh, America is moving to the left, you're also seeing at the same time a rise, a historic rise in right populism, you know, the Trump agenda. Why, is, why are both things, contradictory things happening at the same time? And the answer to your question is that, unfortunately, uh, the, there isn't, leadership on the wider left. Socialist alternative, unfortunately, is the uh, one of the rare exceptions to the rule. And what's mostly predominant on the left, in fact, unfortunately, at this point, is the so-called left in the United States, is that the real left ideas uh, have been decimated in the last 50 years. And what's emerged, for example, is in the labor movement, for example, we don't have the leadership that was present decades ago in the United States, which carried out the kind of leadership that carried out the most inspiring radical militant general strikes that led to huge progress in the United States at that time. We don't have that right now. In fact, the most predominant ideas among the labor leadership in the United States today are what I would call business unionism. This is a really toxic and rotten idea because it's based on this mythology that uh, that you can make um, make deals with the bosses, which utterly fails to understand the very basic concept of capitalism, which is that the interests of the bosses, of the wealth, wealthiest, of the capitalist class, are diametrically opposed to the interests of workers. And so what, what these business unionist labor leaders do is that they don't activate the rank and file membership. They instead want to have negotiations with the bosses and they want to prevent strike actions by workers at all costs. All of this has resulted in 
a situation where even union members, let alone the vast majority of young people who, are, who don't have access to unions, yet they are not unionized and their living standards are lower than the living standards, you know, the salaries and benefits of union members. But even for union members, a lot has been lost. A lot of ground has been lost in the last 50 years because of this business unionist approach by trade union leaders where they don't mobilize the rank and file and at all costs, they want to prevent strike actions. But that's a real problem because going on strike and holding up the profits of the billionaire class is the most important weapon that workers have in our hands. So if we don't go on strike, we actually can't, can't go, you know, can't win big, the big kind of victories we need to win against the billionaire class. So this is sort of, this is what's happening. And, you know, there's been a vacuum of leadership on the left and we need much more of that, but we don't have that yet. You know, uh, there was uh, uh, there was uh, a strike in uh, Amazon, if I recall, and uh, they did unionize in the end. And there are slowly tech unions. Uh, I may be factually uh, slightly wrong, so please correct it. But uh, unions are emerging in tech companies also, aren't they? Unions are starting to emerge, and one of the most historic successful union drives happened, and I think that's the one you're referring to, uh, at the Amazon warehouse facility in Staten Island, on Staten Island in New York. And that was the first union ever in the Amazon Corporation in the United States. And as I said, the We Are Socialist Alternative is leading a union drive at the largest air, Amazon's largest air hub, and that's also an extremely crucial union drive. And we also have seen the emergence of the Alphabet Workers Union, which is the union that represents Google workers. So these are very important beginnings, but we have a long way to go. And in fact, unfortunately, as The Guardian reported on just this past Sunday, the bosses, you know, billionaires like Jeff Bezos at corporations like Amazon are really are fiercely starting to crack down on the workers who are unionizing. And we are seeing a whole series of firings of workers who are actively leading these union drives. Couple of your other campaigns were a millionaire's tax, free transit, housing. Where did they reach? So in 2019, the Amazon Corporation, including Bezos himself, many of the corporate executives, the Chamber of Commerce, you know, these are some of the wealthiest interests that are deeply hostile to the interests of the working class, they uh, went all out to try and defeat us in the re-election that year. But despite uh, everything stacked against us, and in fact, it wasn't just uh, billionaires, it was also the democratic establishment of this city that ran candidates against me that year. You know, the so-called progressives also ran candidates against me. And uh, because of our fighting approach and our and our, our strategy of uniting working people on a common program, Socialist Alternative and I, we were able to defeat them in 2019. And then we built on that election victory by launching the Tax Amazon campaign, the Tax Amazon movement in January of 2020. In fact, my swearing in ceremony uh, in 2020 was combined with the launch of the Tax Amazon movement. And that was a genuinely democratically organized movement where thousands of rank and file workers participated. We also mobilized unions alongside us and other community organizations. And we were able to win 
a historic what we call the Amazon tax, which you, but but you're exactly right. It was a tax on the multimillionaires and the billionaires in order to fund affordable housing and other Green New Deal programs. And that actually has become one of the backbones of the city's budget, as it turns out, because of the COVID recession and other factors. And as far as renters' rights are concerned, we have not won rent control yet, but we have won a whole series of renters' rights. Just to give you a couple of examples, one of the, I mean, and there's too many for me to mention here because we've won, uh, as I said, many renters' rights victories in the last 10 years. But some of the most crucial ones are one, uh, the, uh, the law that mandates that landlords have to give renters, give their tenants six months notice before they increase the rent. And another one where the law says that if you are a renter, if you're a tenant of a landlord, and if you are forced to leave and move somewhere else because your landlord increased the rent more than 10%, in other words, if you were economically evicted, then your landlord owes you three months rent. These were the two of the strongest laws that we won for renters' rights. We'll be right back after this short break. Welcome back to the Wire Talks. Now coming to your latest um, latest uh, victory, a triumph of sorts uh, in the American context at least, why did you think of picking up uh, caste as an issue and how did you go about it? The genesis really of this historic caste ordinance goes back actually three years ago in January and February of 2020. We, uh, my office was organizing alongside the many of the Hindu, Muslim and also Dalit protesters who were fighting against the CAANRC citizenship laws of the Modi regime, which obviously, as all your viewers and listeners know, was, um, you know, they were horrific laws. They, they targeted, they were anti-Muslim, anti-oppressed caste and anti-poor. And so in those protests, Socialist Alternative and my council office, we proposed that we should uh, fight for a city council, Seattle City Council resolution against the CAANRC, you know, condemning those laws and urging U.S. Congress to do the same. Uh, and so many of the activists who were part of that uh, part of that protest movement. They were the ones who were on the front lines alongside my office and Socialist Alternative fighting for this. Uh, organizations like the Coalition of Seattle Indian Americans and the Indi Indian American Muslim Council. So we successfully won that resolution. And it was also historic in its own way because we had to overcome strenuous opposition from the Hindu right wing. In fact, Modi's uh, Indian consulate in San Francisco sent a letter to the city council claiming that we were we you know we were not being truthful about the reality of the resolution I mean uh, about the laws and that the city council shouldn't support it. And in fact, we had to overcome the opposition of the Democratic Party in this city as well. But ultimately, we won a unanimous vote. But that's an example of how you build a fighting movement to win despite all opposition. And then uh, after that, we won a resolution for um, in, in solidarity with the farmers movement in India. And then another, we won yet another resolution to uh, against the vaccine nationalization of the American corporations and other European corporations where vaccines, COVID vaccines were being denied to the neo-colonial world. And so it was through this process of winning victory after victory where uh, the activists in the movement were learning the lessons of how do you fight? How do you unite? How do you win? And we came together again last month in, you know, sorry, last year in December, actually there was a New Year's meeting where we all discussed where, where do we want to go from here? And it was clear that 
many of them, uh, especially the Dalit-led organizations, they were talking about how we need to win a major victory related to caste discrimination in the United States, which has become a serious issue now as the concentration of South Asian immigrant workers has increased. And so it was through that process that we decided this was the next fight to ban caste discrimination in Seattle. Seattle first and then the rest of the country kind of thing that this is how you decided to pitch it, right? Uh, we are absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, and in fact, what's remarkable about this legislation is that this has made Seattle the first jurisdiction of any level in the United States to have banned caste discrimination. But as far as we know, this is also the first jurisdiction globally outside South Asia to do something like this. Tell me, uh, what kind of when these uh, Dalit groups came to you or they started discussing this, what kind of discrimination were they actually specifically talking about? I'm trying to understand that if these uh, Dalit organizations represent members in the United States, how do they perceive it? How do they feel it and experience it on a daily level? Well, some of the instances of discrimination in the workplace are pretty serious, like being denied raises, promotions, being given unjust and unfair peer reviews or appraisals purely based on the fact that you're an oppressed caste, not because of your performance. And then there's also other ways in which you face day to day, you know, on a daily basis, you face indignities like being excluded from meetings. Be you know being the target of supposed you know what what dominant caste people call jokes about your caste or about your background being the target of repeated slurs or derogatory remarks also in a socially in in a very uh, insulting manner like being told oh you should use another bathroom don't use this bathroom so we hear repeated examples of this kind you mentioned the Cisco case, which is a, it's, it's a very, it's an exemplary uh, case because it talks about how this Dalit worker in Cisco, which is a multi-billion dollar tech conglomerate, was denied raises and promotions. So that's a very common situation and that's a serious thing. And uh, another example I should mention, which was also notable, is uh, an, an, a letter written by 30 Dalit women, Dalit software engineers, it was, the letter was written anonymously, but it was published in the Washington Post. And in that letter, they talk about all of the things that I just mentioned, the serious types of discrimination that they're subjected to, including these insulting remarks on a daily basis, and even, even up to uh, fa having faced sexual harassment. So we see this uh, more and more um, prevalent as the concentration of South Asian immigrant workers is increased in the United States. Shama, did you feel that uh, at some stage uh, that uh, this this was becoming getting out of hand? Because, you know, when I was reading about the Cisco case, uh, John Doe, uh, the person who claimed, uh, who said, uh, alleged that uh, there was uh, this kind of uh, discrimination, came up with all kinds of what may appear to the outsider, to the non-American, very subtle ways of uh, discriminating, asking, do you eat beef, for example, or, uh, you know, trying to feel the sacred thread or something like that. Now, did you come across things like this? Yes, I've, I've heard those two, both those examples many times. How did you explain, how did you explain to your American colleagues that this is what it amounted to? It's quite an unusual concept for many Americans. 
it is in fact one of the reasons we were able to win this despite the fact that that most as you correctly said most american working people wouldn't be familiar with the caste issue uh, we were able to win because we got their support as well but the reason we were able to do that was we took uh, political education of working people very seriously around this issue so one of the things we did through my office was publish a frequently asked questions document you know an faq document where we explained everything from the very first point you know what is caste where did it originate from why is it even become an issue in the united states who faces it what does it look like but the most important component i think of all this obviously we had to you know we had to familiarize working people with all of these questions but also i think the most important thing was to explain how there is a common thread running between caste discrimination and other types of discrimination say discrimination on the basis of your gender you know being a woman or discrimination on the basis of race racism and racial discrimination which are much more commonly understood by american workers and we explained that ultimately all these different types of oppression are related to and they come from a class divided society a class based society like capitalism and um so you the we, the fight against racial discrimination or sex, or sexism in the workplace misogyny in the workplace is linked to the fight against diff, other types of discrimination as well and that we have to all be united on that basis so we explain this in the context of just tens of millions of people having marched in the black lives matter movement only you know only two and a half years ago so it it made sense to people that this is related to our fight as well and that we should all be in solidarity about this you know uh, indians are supposed to be the and i use quote marks here model minority in the us won't there be extra attention on them now uh the model minority concept is truly damaging and toxic to the interests of the working class and to any idea of solidarity because it is based on first of all it's based on complete myth, uh, distortion of facts because you know the the people who come here and think that they are the model minority they are completely deny in denial of the fact that they are they were able to emigrate here they were able to have the the wherewithal you know the opportunities for education in india precisely because they come from a position of privilege and so uh, for them to come here and say that they are better than other immigrant communities or other minorities like the black community as i said is in denial of the fact that most of the minorities who are in low income situations are are in those situations because of the way the system has organized itself where some people are uh so you know in the within the work, working class you have divisions you know some are in the upper middle class some are in the middle class some are working class and some are very poor and low income uh, but the reality is that the lion's share of the wealth goes to the billionaire class so we have to actually push back hard against the idea of model minority it is not something to be proud of <laughs> that's an interesting uh, argument uh and uh, personally i've always felt that the model minority is a uh, upper middle class privilege concept but i waited for you to waited for you to say and it doesn't take into account the you know the burger flippers uh, who are uh, hidden underneath the radar so to speak below the radar 
who uh, find it very, very difficult to join this uh, privileged set. Uh, the Hindu American Foundation has really come out very, very strongly against you and against the caste status, the uh, passing of the ordinance. What are they saying and have they reached out to you and what are you saying to them? They are saying that you are needlessly drawing attention upon uh, to Hindus. Uh, <laughs> well, the first thing to note is that the Hindu American Foundation and the other organization, the Coalition of Hindus of North America, these are far-right organizations. So their position on this, it's, it's not only that their position on this ordinance is on the right wing, all their positions are to the far right. So if you go to their website, you can see that their agenda aligns very closely with the agenda of the Modi regime and the Bharatiya Janata Party and, and the idea of Hindu fundamentalism, Hindutva ideology. And so it's no surprise that they have opposed this. They, are, they, have, they have come out in opposition in California as well against the Cisco case, for example. Uh, and so it, it's no surprise. We expected that they would, uh, they would oppose this ordinance. And as far as their uh, idea that this is anti-Hindu, I mean, this, this is not a new idea that any measure of progress for oppressed minorities being anti-some religion is, they didn't invent this talking point. In fact, it is a right-wing talking point and it is universally used by the right-wing globally. So just to give you another example, in the, in the U.S., when there's been, you know, in the last 20 years, there's been a real momentum towards LGBTQ rights. And at that time, we've often heard right-wing Christian people saying, well, you know, if I'm a Christian business owner, then I have the right to deny services to LGBTQ people because it, that's what my religion demands. Um, but we don't accept this. You know, every, every progressive knows that that's a right-wing position and that, of course, we respect every, uh, every religion, but that religion cannot be used as an excuse to abuse or discriminate against any human being. So that's the whole point that is real, uh, that applies here as well. Protecting or, or fighting for people who are facing real oppression is not anti any other person. In fact, it makes all of society better. And in fact, I would ask the, the people who make these, argue, uh, these um, claims, I would ask them, would they have us roll back the progress that has been made for women's rights because that supposedly is anti-man? You know, obviously not. Most most of us are going to uh, want a society that actually keeps progressing on women's rights. It's the same uh, thing applies here as well. And ultimately, uh, the thing to remember uh, about this, the, th the thing to note about the caste ordinance that we want is that who was on our side and who wasn't, those, those, those lines were clearly drawn. I mean, who was on our side? It was obviously the Dalit-led organization, the Ambedkarite organizations, of course. But it wasn't only them. It was also dominant caste Hindus. It was Muslims, Sikhs, socialist alternative and other socialists like me. It was union members, the union of the Google Workers Union, the Alphabet Workers Union, they supported. Amnesty International USA supported it. Ashwini KP, who is the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Racism, who's based in Bangalore, actually, she was here to support this. We had uh, Noam Chomsky, Cardinal West, Arundhati Roy, all and, and hundreds of organizations supporting us. And then on the other side, who was it? It was Hindu American Foundation, Coalition of Hindus of North, uh, uh, of North America, and 
as you said, Vishwa Hindu Parishad, which is obviously a far-right organization. And these are all Hindutva-based organizations. So uh, you think there is, uh, you want to roll it out to the rest of the country. Obviously, there will be some kind of pressure and pushback. Uh, are you looking at a cultural war uh, coming up among? Uh, it will. It will. It, it will. I mean, it may. People. Some people may claim it's a cultural war, but really, it's a war of. I mean, it's a political battle of class interest, and it's a battle on the ideas of. You know, it, it's it's a battle on a vision for future society. You know, do we want the future society that we are fighting for? Do we want it to be based on solidarity and equality, uh, and and progressive vision, or do we want it to go towards this uh, worse situation of right-wing ideas where there is more oppression, more poverty, more inequality? You know, so I think that's the battle going on here. And yes, absolutely, we want this to spread in other cities. But I will again say, I mean, to your point, you're exactly right. There will be opposition, and we should expect that not only from the Hindu and Modi aligned right wing, but it will also come from like we, we saw in Seattle from the democratic establishment. And so if we are going to overcome that opposition, we will need the same kind of fighting movements in these other cities as we had to build here in Seattle to win in the first place. Okay, then uh, I read somewhere that you have said you will leave politics at the end of this year, 2023. Is that true? And what comes next? I wouldn't say that I'm leaving politics because for me uh, as a socialist and as an activist, politics doesn't only mean electoral politics. Politics is also worker organizing and organizing mass movements. So what is true is what that I, I have announced that this year, I mean, this is the re-election year for the city council. I did announce in January that I'm not going to be contesting the election again, because as I said, at the end of this year, I will have served on the council for 10 years and we have used our office uh, fully, you know, really uh, just unflinchingly in the interest of the working class. We have shown how it is possible to use an elected position as a genuine socialist Marxist fighter for the working class by using your office as a platform to build social movements, not as somebody who goes and makes friendships with establishment politi uh, politicians. Uh, we have shown that example, but now it's time to take this example on a much wider scale nationally. So that's why rather than running yet another city council election locally, uh, Socialist Alternative and I, I ha are launching a nationwide movement called Workers Strike Back. And for your viewers and listeners, if they're interested, please go to Workers Strike Back, all one word, workersstrikeback.org to find out more about it. And in fact, we are going to be having a big launch of this organization this coming Saturday, March 4th in Seattle at the University of Washington. So we would, and Workers Strike Back will be fighting against the cost of living increases for a $25 an hour minimum wage for housing rights like rent control. And also we will, Workers Strike Back will also be fighting alongside South Asian activists to continue the fight on caste and religious discrimination as well. Because we know we are actually hearing that also Muslims are facing discrimination here in the United States. So uh, national politics, is that what I'm hearing? Yes. And, and, but yeah, but, but it's not only about electoral politics. Like I said, we want to take these uh, ideas of building a fighting strategy and building unity uh, in the working class to the union movement as well. So that rank and there, we, we want to help reinvigorate the labor movement as well and bring back some of the best and proudest ideas of militant rank and file organizing.
So uh, I want to wind up with this, but there is a question that actually has sprung up in my mind while we were talking. Are there youngsters who come up to you to say, I want to become a socialist? What do I do? Yes, a lot, actually. It happens all the time. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much. Um, and I was uh, interested to hear that you had said that there was solidarity in the from India too. There's a lot more happening here, and I'm sure you're quite aware of it. That was uh, Kshama Savant, a city councillor in Seattle, who has just led a battle against caste discrimination in her city. And it's the first time any city has outlawed, completely outlawed caste discrimination. You heard what she said about how it shows up in very, very nasty and sometimes not so, sometimes subtle ways. Uh, and she wants to take this battle elsewhere in the United States. Thank you, Shama, for thank this. You so uh, much, yeah, thank you for joining us. And again, thank you uh, so uh, quickly and so promptly agreeing to talk to us at The Wire. Uh, we'll be back once again next week with another guest. Till then, from me, Siddharth Bhatia and the rest of The Wire Talks team, goodbye. You can check out this podcast and other interesting ones on the Wire website, the IVM podcast website, app, or wherever else that you get your podcasts. Goodbye from me, Siddharth Bhatia, and the Wire Talks podcast team.